It's the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Mark and John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, Now they have been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the gospel of our Lord. Good morning, everybody. So good to be with you. Uh, Welcome to church. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, If we haven't met, my name is Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here. We're uh, thrilled to have you with us on this uh, third Sunday of Advent. I feel compelled to say, just because some of us may be visiting and and new, and new to the liturgy, and um, well, for all of us here, even at Christ the King, we're new to our Advent rhythms. We don't um, every Sunday have a processional, and we don't every Sunday um, have the gospel read from in the center of the church. But um, given that it's Advent, and this is a time of the year when we're called to like remember that there was a decisive moment in which God made a decisive decision uh, to like enter into the world, uh, for the light of God to come into the world. This is our way of like acknowledging that fact that truly Christ did come in, uh, that he entered into the midst of us, both in our processing and then in the reading of the gospel from the center of the church, is meant to be a reminder not just that he came once at his birth, but that that's where he is. Christ is at the center of his church in the midst of his people. And we get to read the gospel from there as a sort of visible and visual reminder of that fact, that that's where we hear the gospel, is in the real stuff of our real lives and in the midst of, you know, real people. Uh, So thank you for worshiping with us, and um, Steve, thank you for helping us to see these invisible graces through visible things. Uh, Today, we're going to focus on uh, the third Sunday of Advent, and we're going to also revisit sacraments, which we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Here at Christ the King, we've been trying to think together about why the sacraments matter. What does it mean to be strengthened by them? We've spent weeks past talking about the Holy Spirit, what it means to be led by the Spirit, and before that, what it means to be shaped by the Scripture. And somehow, all these things, Scripture, the Holy Spirit, um, sacraments, these gifts of God, are working together to shape us into the likeness of Jesus. So what does it actually really mean um, to be strengthened by something like a sacrament, a little bitty wafer, a little bit of wine? What's the big deal, you know? So I want to talk about that a little bit. I also want to give space to uh, these powerful and important texts that we read this morning. And so, Lord, help us. That's a lot to try to weave and hold together. And so we're going to pray. 
uh, and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Uh, Lord, be here with us now, um, even, Lord, especially in, in this way. Would you give us ears to hear, Lord? And I ask you, Lord, that you would say what needs to be said, nothing more, nothing less that you would settle in our own hearts and over our minds, thoughts, distractions, Lord, in a way that would bring peace, give us grace to hear, to be with you, attentive to you and what you might be saying and doing. I ask for the gentleness of your spirit to be here with us, Lord. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Third week of Advent, uh, Gaudete Sunday. Rejoicing Sunday. It's Pink Candle Sunday in my house. Um, my favorite of Advent. Not just because it's pink, she must say, but because of what it preaches. Um, this, this candle, I do believe, is meant to, to preach to us, to remind us of something. And so for those of us maybe who are new to or not familiar with um, the Advent wreath, I want to talk about it just a little bit and how it connects to, I think, what we're called to think about, which is hope and the call to rejoice even in the waiting. Um, this is an Advent wreath, and it is our way of keeping time through the season of Advent. Each Sunday, we light a candle as we make our way towards Christmas, and uh, when the clock changes over and it's Christmas time, uh, we'll light the Christ candle in the center. And the candles are purple on purpose. That is the season of Advent as it is the season of Lent. Purple in the liturgical church is a penitential color, meaning it's a kind of somber color. It brings and holds with it a kind of heaviness and a sadness. It's a beautiful color, um, but there's a kind of heaviness to it, a sobriety about it. And so that marks the Advent season and the Lenten season. And the thing about the Advent wreath is that these candles are all, all purple on purpose because we're marking time through this season where we're called to wait and embrace the heaviness and the hard in the world. We read the text throughout Advent as a reminder that like, it is into a people who dwell in a land of deep darkness that Jesus came. And so the call of Advent is to feel some of the darkness, to acknowledge it, to reckon with it. So we light the purple candles until we get to the third week, which is arguably when the darkness ought to be its darkest. It's the latest hour, the darkest hour of the night. And just when you think it would make more sense to have a black candle on week three, the church, as she wants to do, surprises us with a pink candle. The color literally brightens. Purple turns to pink as if it's been infused with light. And this is meant to be a reminder, a call actually to the church, that it is in our darkest hour that we have to choose as followers of Jesus to practice rejoicing, to practice hope as a kind of spiritual discipline, because it's not something that comes native or natural to us necessarily. It is not at least my instinct in my darkest and hardest times to then, you know, sing praises to God or to feel particularly hopeful or to rejoice. And so this comes as a reminder that there is something in it, in the rejoicing, especially when maybe it doesn't feel natural to us. The choice to rejoice, the choice to have hope that isn't of itself something really like Jesus. It's not just right to do, it's good to do. There's a gift in it for us. Maybe we're strengthened by it even. Waiting people have to choose 
to rejoice or to be glad or to remember what it is they're waiting for at a certain moment when the waiting is long. Do you know what I mean? If you've ever had to wait for something for a very long time, there comes a point at which you are like, I'm either leaving or I'm leaning in. And this is the call to lean in, to remember what it is that we're waiting for, to choose to rejoice, to hold on to the promises, lest we lose them. I was thinking about this last night. I watched John Baptiste's American Symphony documentary. Have you seen it yet? Um, if you haven't, I, I commend it to you as an Advent practice. Um, you should. Um, John whose music you may not know, and um, also you should listen to it if you don't, it's really good. Um, but he, uh, in the documentary, you get to see behind the scenes, uh, he won five Grammys with his last album, including Album of the Year. And so on what would have been, you know, in so many ways and reasons should have been the greatest night of his life, he got a phone call that his wife was back in the hospital, recovering, trying to recover from her leukemia treatments. How do you hold both of those things at the same time? You win album of the year, your wife trying not to die, and you're not there. Advent, how do we hold the waiting, the brokenness, the hard, the darkness, because all is not as it should be, ultimately, not yet, and hold the hope and the promise, the certainty of Christ's coming. <sighs> Hope is made out of that. If I can hold both of those things together at the same time, then hope will be born. This is very different, of course, from, you know, a kind of Pollyanna-ish optimism, which the church is often rightly and sadly accused of. Sometimes people hear our merrymaking as a denial of reality and the hard and the pain, our insistence on the goodness of God and what we believe about Jesus is a way to kind of like wash over or numb out from reality and the things that are not as they should be. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. Hope is something else. Hope is honest. That's what makes it different. You can be cheerful and optimistic and all of those things are fantastic. I have people in my life who are that way by nature. I'm thankful for them, because I'm less so. So it's good for me to be around them. But that kind of cheerfulness and that kind of optimism, we just have to note, is a different thing from Christian hope. There's something unique about it. It's different in the substance of it. What we're talking about is an aspect of Christ-likeness that to be resiliently hopeful is to be like Jesus in a particular kind of way. And that's the thing, y'all, is that during Christmas, we're not just like thankful that he came and we're not just like celebrating this beautiful story, but like I am rejoicing because there is hope for me that I could be like that, <laughs> that I could have resiliency in my soul, in the deepest parts of me, that I could be both honest about the hard parts of life and like hopeful at the same time. What a gift that would be to become that kind of person, which is precisely the invitation we have through the Holy Spirit. My Lord, what else are we here for if not that? 
Jesus had to practice this kind of hope on a number of occasions, not the least of which is when he preached his first sermon in his hometown, and he was assigned Isaiah 61, which we read this morning. Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stands up to read from the prophet. He reads Isaiah 61. He sits back down, and people loved it. It was a hit. Awestruck by him, the graciousness of his speech, Luke says. They liked it, felt good, felt hopeful. That's what we want to hear. And then Jesus challenges them, and on a dime, they turn. They end up running him out of town, literally, out and away. And I thought about that moment a lot, because it's in moments like that that Jesus had to choose, he had to practice hope. Because if you're just looking at the facts of it on the surface, well, this doesn't look like it's going to go well. <laughs> um, these people are fickle at best. They're quick to turn on you. Why are we here? Why am I doing this? And yet Jesus had to hold on to the truth, the reality of what was hard, and also look at God's goodness and what he knew to be best and true about us and who the Lord was and hold those things, bring them all together in his person, and it's what kept him moving forward. Hope. Resilience. He did this over and over again. I think the most like, vivid image of it, though, because he practiced this like every day, it counted for him when it really mattered. Um, you all remember the cross. Uh, I don't know how a person is hopeful while being crucified. I suspect that would be a poor time to start trying to practice being hopeful. Whilst you're being crucified. So why we make such a thing about spiritual formations, why we make such a thing about practicing this stuff is because you can't just put on hope in an instant. That's why Advent calls us to practice it now. Even if you're not in the midst of a crisis, put yourself in your imagination, in your heart, in the places of people who are, and call yourself to be hopeful now while you're not in crisis because yours is coming. And when it comes, you'll want it. That which you can't have in an instant. Because Jesus practiced hope in places like Nazareth when the cross came for him. And he was hanging there. If you remember, there was a moment in which Jesus cries out and he quotes from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A hard psalm, of course, in the way that it begins. A hard moment for Jesus. Here's what resonates so deeply. And like, this is the moment, you know, it just biblically speaking, that scholars, even theologians, have for generations and centuries. It's like hard for us to even, we tremble to think about it. How does God feel God forsaken? But he did. Because he was human. And for all of us who are human, part of the experience and the pain of it, actually, is getting into your darkest hour, or at least the fear of getting into your darkest hour and feeling like you are alone when you get there. God is not with you in the way that you need him to be or want him to be. And so we can look to the cross in this moment in Jesus' life and say, oh, even he felt it. So it's an honest admission about what's hard. It's why we love Jesus, because we can see ourselves in him, He's naming it like it is, but it's not all he's doing. 
we can't forget that Psalm 22 is not only a song of despair. When Jesus began quoting from Psalm 22, he had not only the beginning of the psalm in mind, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also had in mind the ending of the psalm, which ends this way. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. What's so powerful to me about what Jesus chooses to do here in this moment is to start a song that he knew that those standing at the foot of his cross would know not only the beginning of, but the end. Jews, by the way, don't say the Psalms. Jews sing the Psalms. I've never been in a synagogue in which they read the Psalms. They sing them. And I can't promise you that Jesus sang from the cross, but it is likely, it's likely, that when he started Psalm 22, he sang it, knowing good and well, not only giving voice to his pain, but as a word of assurance to Mary, his mother, and to John, his best friend, hey, you know how this ends. Sing with me. Even here, I'll start. You finish. He has done it. That's hope the Christian kind. And Jesus isn't the only person I have seen model that kind of hope. I have been at people's bedsides who were dying. I have sat with mothers who have lost their infants in the darkest and most impossible places. And you don't want to just be human in a moment like that. You need your humanity to be swallowed up by glory, mortality, wrapped in immortality. You need to feel the part of you that belongs to the spirit of Jesus, or you won't live. Surviving and living are not the same thing. How do we live? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's hard, y'all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. You know and I know we've all been in circumstances that seem impossible, inhumane to try to rejoice in a moment like that. And please hear me. I think you know that... Have you ever been in a really hard moment with somebody who just refused to let it be hard? That's not comforting. It seems dishonest. 2020 was It was hard on a lot of us for a lot of reasons. And we needed to come to the church and have people like me look us in the faces and say, this is hard. 
And we're not okay, not today. So what does it mean to rejoice in all circumstances? If anybody except Paul were saying it, I probably wouldn't be able to stomach it. But I happen to know that this was a person who knew what it was like to be shipwrecked, who knew what it was like to be beaten, who from not just one jail cell, but many jail cells, had to choose to sing like his Lord. Until their chains were set free. That's Christian hope. And I promise you, whenever Paul started singing out of that jail cell, it felt different than the person who's at the dying bedside who just like can't let it be hard. You know? You have to take the hard. You have to take the hope. And we pull them together. This is what the sacraments are teaching us to do. In this table, at this table, in these elements, our humanity, earth and heaven are coming together. The hard parts of our reality and the goodness of God. Who he is, his promises, where this is all heading, who we really are and what we're all about. Because it's also not true to overemphasize what's hard. And it's what scares me about our particular cultural moment. Is that in an effort to make a correction, the pendulum is swinging a touch far. And some of us have made our home in cynicism. And there is no home for you, church. We are a hopeful people. We have to be honest so that we can be hopeful. I happen to know that in a room like this that there are more than one of you who have no doubt been wounded even spiritually by feeling like you were pressured to deny the hard thing that you were going through. That it wouldn't be Christ-like for you to admit that you were struggling. That the adoption didn't turn out as well as you wanted it to, actually. That marriage was not just like hard in the way it's hard, but it's like really, really hard. And that you couldn't say that out loud. And so what happens when we feel like we can't say all of that out loud and we're pressured to pretend we take all of those feelings, they got to go somewhere, and so we bury them inside of our bodies. And our bodies hold our pain. They hold what's true. They keep the score. That's real. So what happens when we try to be hopeful, we reach down inside of us, and then all we can draw out is anger. Or disillusionment. And you don't like that, so you try to put it back in, you know? And you just keep going. Is the mercy of Jesus in my life to remind me that he is not the one who is calling me to do that? I don't know where that pressure is coming from or why. I'm sure the best intentions... But it is not the Lord who calls us to do that. He is honest. He can handle us. He not only accepts the liabilities that come with our humanity, y'all, he dressed himself in it. That's the imagery of Isaiah 61. 
whatever it means to be like clothed with praise and robed in righteousness, the reason I believe that Jesus chose to say that passage, to preach it as his truth, was because what he had done was in fact that. He had put on not praise actually on the surface of it, not righteousness on the surface of it, but our frailty. And he wore it like a robe, like a coronation gown. All your brokenness, all the honest limitations of your humanity, who you really are, He didn't dodge it. He didn't run from it. He put it on and he wore it proudly and he carried it all the way to the cross and that's who he is. That's where our hope comes from. Over and over and over again. This is the thing that makes me, if I'm honest with you, a little bit, it's just what troubles me about what I'm going to call our prosperity gospel for lack of a better way of saying it. It means a lot of things. That like Jesus wants you to be like really good looking and really make a lot of money and to, you know that's God's highest and best for you. I'm not saying God doesn't want those things for you. Yeah, I hope you could handle that better than I can, or apparently a lot of the rest of us. He's a good father. He wants good gifts for us. But I'm troubled by the assumption that that's what faithfulness looks like for the Christian, that when I am living faithfully, I will have those things. I'm troubled also by a rapture theology, not that I don't understand where it comes from, I do understand, but you have to hear me. I'm troubled by it because I'm tempted by it. What I want to believe is that if God really loves me and if I can be a really good Christian, when things get hard, he's going to come get me just like my dad and take me out of there so that I don't have to deal with it. And I get why that feels good. And y'all, to a degree, there's truth in it. But it's the same thing with Christian nationalism. Whatever we mean when we say that, please hear me. The reason it's so tempting is because we want to believe that God is on our side and he loves us and therefore he wants us to be the biggest and best, the surest, the strongest, the fastest, the biggest guns, That's what God would have for us. And it's tempting to believe because we think that if God loved us, that that's what he would want. But the thing is, y'all, God loves all of us. All of us. And so his love for you, he holds with his love for everybody. And this whole thing, this whole kingdom is going somewhere. And so I am troubled by a theology that would tempt me to believe that God's aim, that his intention is to deliver me from tribulation rather than see me through it. Do you know what I'm saying? Because I like that. I like that. But what if he could see me through it and make me stronger on the other side? That's what I would teach my sons, and I really love them. I don't want them to be running in fear for all of their lives. I want them to know how to go through the hard things. So when Jesus called the disciples to the upper room before the cross, he did it not so they could avoid the cross, but so they would be strong enough to get through it. Oh. I think we would all fare really well to imagine a Jesus who during Advent sings to us from his cross. 
will you sing with me, church, is a good question. I just, we can't, you know, can't glory in a cross, y'all, that we're not willing to carry. We are followers of Jesus. And I pray he spares you every single one. And because he loves you, he will spare you every one he can. And he will see you through the rest of them. He will strengthen you the whole way. He will give us the strength we need to sing from our crosses just the way he did. And that, that gospel, that good news, that saves the world. It changes people every single time. Little Christs, that's who we are. People of hope, that's who we are. We're strong enough because he is, and that's good news. So with this remainder of Advent, we get to practice hope, practice rejoicing. And I pray that we would ask the Holy Spirit, how do I be honest about what's hard and also really clear-eyed about who God is and the promises he has for us? Hold them together. We'll practice at the table. We'll practice now in prayer. I'm going to pray. Holy Spirit, help us, Lord. Have mercy on us, Jesus. You who are our good shepherd and our good father, our gracious Lord. The writer of Hebrews says, You are familiar, Lord, with all of our weaknesses. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us as we are. Thank you, Lord, for aiming us beyond ourselves, giving us hope. Help us now, Lord, to pray. Strengthen our spirits, Jesus.